Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Did you ever imagine when you began an integrative medicine fellowship that you'd be training colorectal surgeons? <laughs> well, surgeons in general, I've been delighted when we had surgeons coming to our fellowship. It's true. It's been quite wonderful. And now across the country, you could actually find an orthopedic surgeon, a cardiac surgeon. And today, our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Raskin, is a colorectal surgeon. So it's going to be great to talk to her. And I understand she practices robotic surgery as well. She does. And she has a passion for nutrition. Great. <laughs> That's integrative. It sure is. Let's get her on. Dr. Elizabeth Raskin is a colorectal surgeon and the surgical director of the Margolis Family Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program at Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach, California. She was one of the first women in the world to perform robotic colorectal surgery, and she has a keen interest in developing technologies that can improve patient treatment outcomes and different options. Dr. Raskin is currently a fellow at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. This is a delight. Well, we're delighted to have you. And uh, I think you're our first integrative surgeon on the podcast. So mm. I'd love to maybe hear a little bit about your journey. What made you become a colorectal surgeon and how did you get interested in integrative surgery? Well, I think it takes me back to when I first had an interest in medicine. And I like this story because it has to do with my lineage in medicine. When I was four years old, my father was a fellow in rheumatology at Walter Reed Hospital outside of Washington, D.C. in Bethesda. And he used to practice his talks in the basement of our home, projecting his slides up on the wall. And I would sit there at the age of four just mesmerized by these seemingly abstract art pieces as we saw slides of cells that were beautifully stained. They looked like masterpieces. And I knew even at the age of four that I wanted to be part of this secret society that knew what that <laughs> meant. And so truthfully, my journey into medicine started as an abstract art enthusiast. And then as I entered more formal uh, medical education, I started to realize that the thing that drove me the most or most interested me was using my hands and laying on the hands. But then as I was able to do my surgical rotation, it was very clear that my passion was in the art and the science of surgery. When it comes to integrative medicine, I think I knew as early as a teenager that I was fascinated by other ways of thinking about health and healing. I was really interested in nutrition at a young age. I thought about going to naturopathic school before I entered um, my, the MD program. And so that was always in the back of my head that there was something that I knew that I wouldn't get from traditional osteopathic training that I, I wanted to continue to seek out. And it wasn't until I had to take a pause in my life and reassess what I was doing in my career that I decided to commit to learning more about integrative medicine. That's such a great story. So how do you use what you've learned about integrative medicine in a surgical practice? That's a great question because 
this is the first surgeon that you're interviewing about that. But I think it starts with the relationship you make with a patient. So traditionally, when we're trained in surgery, we're taught to think about, you know, just taking care of the problem and then the patient moves on to see their primary care provider. But truthfully, as an integrative surgeon, I think about the longitudinal nature of the relationship that I have with the patient, especially in the field of inflammatory bowel disease, where I subspecialize my work. But it's, it's the getting to know the patient from the very beginning, as, as we've learned in integrative medicine, the liminality of crossing the threshold into the patient's room and that first interaction that you have with the patient that allows you to engender trust. And in surgery, that is at the center of where <laughs> our work is. We have to have that trust between the patient and ourselves because we're doing something that only very few people are, are, are privileged to do, which is to enter the body of some uh, other human being. And we have to be trusted to care for them as we would want to be cared for ourselves. And so it starts when we first meet the patient. And then as we learn more about them, we'll ask really specific questions about what is most important to them because they're facing a condition that has got to the point that they're seeking surgical care. There is more than just the disease at hand. We're talking about even the, the trauma that goes along with a diagnosis, a diagnosis that might be colon cancer that was discovered after having symptoms for a while, or it might be a condition that has crept up and they've sought treatment for, like Crohn's disease, that ultimately gets to the point where they need surgery. So we need to acknowledge what that disease has done to the patient. And they need to explore that with us. And that is not something that I was ever trained in surgery. I was never trained to walk that path with a patient. And so learning in the fellowship so far has opened my mind to ways to connect to patients on a deeper level. That's really uh, such a wonderful way to put it. And I think probably a somewhat unusual way um, for a surgeon to put it. And you know, I know that one of the things that you have really worked on um, at uh, your center is creating a healing environment and uh, involving other members of your team as you care for patients. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Sure. And, and surgery still is a big part of what we do, but mm -hmm. the larger aspect is that we're building teams around patients. And when a patient needs surgery, especially in the realm of inflammatory bowel disease, they need more than just a surgeon. They need a caring team that's equipped to approach multiple facets of their health. So this may start out with dietary counseling and nutrition counseling that a patient will receive from one of our um, expert dietitians. Clearly, our medicine colleagues in gastroenterology have been uh, playing a role in medical management of the patient's inflammation and disease process, maybe even performing colonoscopy or endoscopy um, over the years. But we also have uh, it, providers in our clinics, such as care counselors. Now, care counselor sounds like a, a kind of a nebulous term, but it's actually a euphemism we use for our social workers mm -hmm. who are our therapists. We found that patients receive help 
more often and in a better way when the term care counselor is used as opposed to social worker or therapist. It's a strange um, terminology that patients kind of retract from and say, you know, I don't need to be supported like that. I don't need a crutch so that I can walk. But what we use uh, uh, is also the term care community for our support group so that patients feel part of a community of other patients that are walking the same journey. And so those are some of the individuals that we have on our team, but we are now pairing with a traditional Chinese medicine physician who will be providing acupuncture both in our clinic, but potentially also in our perioperative space, which will be a new step forward for our team. We also have massage therapists, physical therapists, as well as psychologists that are working with our patients that may, may need surgery. So it is fairly comprehensive, and it's an environment that I've never worked in before in surgery. And a lot of it has just been this labor of love of finding and connecting with practitioners in our area and finding that mutual interest that we have in healing patients. I think one of the big things as a surgical resident and a surgical trainee is I was never taught that I could actually be a healer. We are taught to be kind of like mechanics on some levels mm -hmm. and that the healing can take place in some other environment. But I really refuse to believe this. I believe that surgeons ought to be tapping into their uh, capacity to be true healers and to heal patients on levels that they may not have had traditional training in. Speaking of mechanics, tell us about your experience <laughs> with robotic surgery. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, everyone likes to know about the high-tech stuff, which is really fun. And I took to robotics um, over 13, almost 14 years ago when it was really new technology. And robotic surgery is, it's not robots doing surgery, but it is the, uh, it's a branch of minimally invasive surgery that allows us to use a surgical robot and for the surgeon to control every motion that the robot does. So it is a rudimentary way of using robotics. There is no artificial intelligence really embedded into the robot except for a few little things. But what it allows us to do is to place instruments through very small incisions, typically eight millimeters a piece. And the robot has four arms. And this allows us to place a camera through one of the arms and then to have three hands, so to speak. So through these small incisions within the abdomen, we are manipulating the tissue just like we would if we had a traditional open incision uh, that has been used for hundreds of years. Um, so what robotics has allowed us to do beyond the, the small incisions is to speed up the healing of a patient, to lessen the pain associated with surgical incisions, to have a quicker return of bowel function and the ability to start eating. And so we're really scratching the surface over the past 20 years of robotics being available to um, patients in the United States, we're only starting to recognize what those full um, uh, advantages are. I've been doing it for, as I mentioned, over 13 years, and we lacked a lot of the newer sophisticated technology that we use now, which includes uh, immunofluorescence, 
We obviously are, are looking through high-definition 3D cameras. So we're looking at our instruments moving in three dimensions, which you, you traditionally in laparoscopy don't do that because you're looking at flat screens. So it gives you depth perception, which you don't uh, traditionally have in minimally invasive surgery. So robotics is the future, but it's also the present. And it's a little bit of the past. We are uh, hoping to see our robots get smarter and smarter so that there is a way to guide surgeons in ways of keeping surgery even safer than it is now. So I have to say, I started in medicine at a time when if you had your gallbladder out, you had a foot-long incision across your upper abdomen, <laughs> and it was hard to heal. People were pretty miserable. And I remember when laparoscopic uh, cholecystectomy, so gallbladder removal, began. And there were a lot of surgeons who were not excited. They were like, no, I need to see in the abdomen. I need to get my hands in there. And I think there was some resistance to laparoscopic. And now, of course, you're describing the, the next iteration, moving from laparoscopic to now robotic. Is there a future where we have the robot with 10 hands? Like, where are we going? <laughs> so you're absolutely right about the pushback that oh. um, traditional surgeons have had towards minimally invasive surgery. And in fact, really, when the um, first cholecystectomies were being done or gallbladder removals laparoscopically, uh, it was done by a German surgeon who was then kicked out of his own surgical society huh. because they thought him using small incisions was, quote unquote, Mickey Mouse surgery, mm. only to reinstate his surgical society membership and to give him the highest honor about 20 years later when he was at the forefront of surgical innovation. So regarding robotics, what I think will happen is we will make robots, number one, smarter. Number two, smaller, and number three, cheaper. So right now, robots are they're quite large and they're quite expensive, okay. and they're not available to the vast majority of people in the world. And so how do we democratize this mm -hmm. option in surgery for patients? Well, we've got to um, we've got to make them smaller and cheaper and uh, smarter. And not everyone's trained, not everyone's trained to use them. That's right. So I've been part of a group of surgeons that have been training surgeons for over a decade. And now it's available to be learned by our surgical residents and our surgical fellows, where that just didn't exist um, when I started in surgery. And that was only, you know, 20 years ago. Um, with that being said, it has enough momentum that robots are available in um, all continents except for Antarctica. And the interesting thing about robotics is that it was first developed, the surgical robot was first developed to be used in what we call telepresence surgery. Right. So to do surgery in really remote locations like the moon in a battlefield. And as they developed this technology, they recognized, wait a minute, no, we could actually use this in our hospitals now. Uh -huh. And so cardiac surgeons first adopted it and then uh, followed by urologists and then uh, general surgeons. So it's really a fascinating evolution. Do you get any resistance from patients to robotics? I used to about 10 years ago because I think it was really unfamiliar. And the notion of a robot doing surgery was stuck in their head from science fiction films over yeah. many years. And, and truthfully, one of the neat stories that Robert Heinlein wrote was about a 
surgical robot. The the story is called Waldo, and it's all about <laughs> him using uh, robotic technology because he had uh, myasthenia gravis, and so. 50 years ago or more, Robert Heinlein predicted what was going to happen in medicine. And now we have uh, robots in, in most major hospitals. Our hospital has, I want to say, nine or 10 robots mm -hmm. and is used ubiquitously. So the pushback doesn't exist now. But in the beginning, I had to really create that trust with a patient to say, no, this is technology. It is early in its adoption but I will keep you safe. And it is an extension of the minimally invasive surgery that we do know how to do. And I'm very thankful for patients who trusted me to allow my skill set to grow. I want to ask you um, about low tech. You know, we've now talked a little bit about high tech. So all of us, I know, are passionate about nutrition. I think a lot of people don't realize how critically important nutrition is when you're having surgery, both your nutritional status entering into a surgery and then your nutrition as you uh, heal from surgery. Can you speak to that a bit? It is at the forefront of where healing, you know, we're, we're, what we need to do to heal is to nourish ourselves. And so when it comes to surgical nutrition, we have to look at each patient individually. Because we don't have the greatest markers to tell us yes, no. Somebody is, uh, you know, a good surgical candidate from a from a nutrition standpoint, and a, another person is not. There aren't single parameters. We have to use a constellation of parameters, and those include anything from protein levels like albumin and prealbumin, um, looking at someone's BMI, but not exclusively because we can have patients with really low BMI or high BMI and it's not necessarily a reflection of their nutritional status. In fact, many of our patients that I operate on are very malnourished because mm. of the lack of protein, but yet maybe their BMI is quite high. So what you see is a lack of muscle and protein content, but you have a large amount of um, adipose tissue. So patients have high obesity rates, but yet they're not well-nourished. And that's a concept that is hard to get our minds around because we think of patients that might be big or bigger as being well-nourished, but it isn't necessarily true from the ability to heal. Uh, similarly, we'll have many thin patients that um, have perfect parameters when it comes to protein. So, so everyone needs to be looked at in a very individualized way. But when we do think about surgery, we want to make sure that a patient um, has not recently lost a tremendous amount of weight because that is a predictor for poor healing and poor outcome. Mm -hmm. So over the past, let's just say 30 to 60 days, has a patient lost 5 to 20 pounds? This is very common to see in patients who have obstructions from inflammation, whether that's from Crohn's disease or cancer or from diverticular disease, they may choose not to eat because their symptoms are so bad. And very rapidly, you'll find that they have um, uh, elements of malnutrition. So we want to intervene as soon as we possibly can. So when we are meeting the patient for the first time, we're getting some routine lab work, but we're asking them questions about how they eat, what they like to eat, how often do they eat? Do they, um, can they not eat certain foods in their mind? And to get a gauge, basically take a pulse on the patient from a nutritional standpoint to understand 
if they're not in a good range from a nutrition uh, point of view, what can we do to alter that? What can we mm-hmm. do to optimize them before surgery so that they have the best chances of healing without potential uh, complication? And so that's a little bit of the way that we look at our patients when we first meet them. We can also use imaging. We can look at CAT scans and look at lean muscle mass on a CAT scan and compare that to the amount of adipose tissue that a patient has. But there's no perfect lab test, unfortunately. So it is more of a gestalt. You use mind-body methods in your practice since the gut is so sensitive to uh, mental interventions. It's been called the second brain. We absolutely do. I, I think this is an area where we are still growing, but there is a wide acceptance by both practitioners in our group, but also patients, that they know that this is important to their healing, starting as soon as we can to get a gauge on how much stress they're under and what do they do to reduce stress, whether that's breathing techniques, um, meditation. I will tell you, Andy, I have taught them your breathing techniques, (laughs) both preoperatively and postoperatively, and we'll write it on the wall for them to know the numbers. So you are having an effect um, on many patients that you're unaware of, but we go through the breathing techniques with them pre and post-op. And we also have been using a lot of aromatherapy with our patients to help reduce um, anxiety and stress and combining that with breathing techniques. We're also working with several mindfulness um, meditation coaches, which I think is very helpful for a patient who has experienced trauma from having had a prior surgery that maybe didn't go as well or has had uh, multiple surgeries over their lifetime, which is quite common in patients with Crohn's and colitis. So really recognizing that the disease has had a major impact on the patient. And my job is not just to go in and take it out, but it's to learn how to help a patient heal themselves best. That may include surgical intervention. Andy, maybe you could let our listeners know where they can find that 478 breath. Uh, If you put my name into YouTube and 478 Breath, you'll see a lot of videos of me (laughs) teaching it. And Elizabeth, I have a question for you, maybe a little off your practice. You're seeing um, end stage or very advanced conditions, consequences of inflammatory bowel disease. What's your gut estimate of how much of that could have been prevented if there were earlier medical interventions uh, and that people had good information about how to reduce inflammation in general and help the gut heal? I would say over half of those patients would not have made it that far down the path that they would need surgery. And a lot of times I'll ask patients, why do you think or how do you think this disease first started? And many of our patients can even pinpoint a time in their life Mm. when something very stressful has Mm -hmm. happened. And they may not have had the ability to dissect it and to heal from it and to find strategies to reduce the stresses associated with that. I'll give you an example, Um, physical trauma, uh, a, a car accident, a death of a loved one. Many times these things will trigger a stress response that's so intense that down the road we're seeing conditions that 
fall into the rheumatologic spectrum, honestly, as I've talked to my father quite a bit about this as, a, as he's a rheumatologist. But with inflammatory bowel disease, patients will say, I remember I was in high school and I, I had this abdominal pain and then, you know, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease later. So not exclusively that they could be prevented, but let's say we identified that early and then we had the, the appropriate ways to help a patient tackle the stress and help uh, heal themselves. And then you coupled it with nutrition and nutrition counseling and sleep hygiene. These are, these are all things that get so uh, deranged mm -hmm. as this cycle of disease is occurring that long story short, they get to the point where they're diagnosed and maybe they need surgery from the moment they were, they were first diagnosed with Crohn's or colitis. But I do believe that these are conditions that can be healed in, um, in different ways that we're, we just um, haven't been successful in intervening early enough in the mm -hmm. patient's. I uh, know that one of the things you've been experimenting with is uh, virtual reality. So moving back to high tech, how do you find that useful? Virtual reality is um, clearly technology and it's part of the high tech part because we're using a, a headset that provides images of landscape typically or an experience that allows a patient to take themselves to a different place than where they are. Maybe it's the pre-op area. Maybe it is the post-operative recovery room. Maybe someday we'll even be doing this in the operating room as they're drifting to sleep. But it's a way to have a patient experience a more pleasant environment um, through visual travel, um, if, if you will. Maybe they're going through a meadow of flowers or flying over the Swiss Alps. It can also be in the form of um, uh, uh, guided imagery and guided uh, meditation where you are seeing something and you're being guided in an auditory way as to how to relax. And so I believe that this is something very powerful for patients to experience, especially in the preoperative setting when they are ramped up with anxiety about mm -hmm. being poked with needles being um, going under anesthesia is very stressful for most patients. They are afraid of letting go. They're afraid of having somebody else breathe for them. And then, of course, surgery. What is what are they going to wake up with? How is their body going to be altered? How mm -hmm. what kind of pain are they going to be experiencing? And so, when they're faced with this, the anxiety in the preoperative area is very very high. And you can tell a patient, relax, relax. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> Yeah. But nothing <laughs> says it as well as um, through the lavender fields of France. Mm -hmm. Maybe we accompany it with aromatherapy as we have been doing. And mm -hmm. making making this a, a peaceful and comforting experience as, a, as opposed to so stricken with fear and anxiety. Um, we've had a lot of positive results from our patients. What do you wish your surgical colleagues uh, knew about integrative medicine? Such a great question, because I don't think I knew how my journey was going to unfold with integrative medicine. And I'll give you a good example. So I, I told you that I found integrative medicine as a, as a fellowship or as a branch of, of medicine, because I personally felt like I had hit a breaking point in my career, mm -hmm. where I thought I couldn't continue doing what I was doing. I was 
overworking. I was not sleeping. I lived in the same household as my family and my three children, and I never saw them. And I had patient after patient coming through the doors. And so I felt both that I was pushed into this form of what I call surgical uh, saviorism, where I felt like I couldn't stop working because who else was going to help these people? Mm -hmm. At the same time, you become a little bit of a martyr where you throw yourself on the sword of the work that you do. So you become unhealthy. And so when I started the fellowship, one of the, as you know, the first thing you're doing is taking a personal inventory of yourself. I wish that that was something that I did earlier in my life as I was going through surgical training. But unfortunately, we still perpetuate the, the surgeon archetype in training of someone who works hard, never goes home, and puts patients before anything else, including their own health. And the problem with that is that if you're trying to be the best healer and provider that you can be, how can you give what you don't have? How, how, how can I give them a way to heal themselves when I myself was suffering so badly? Yeah. And so that, that first week in our residency at the University of Arizona was so powerful because it really emphasized to me that I had been neglecting myself for decades. And I, I thought I was a pretty healthy person. I've been a marathon runner and I eat really well and, you know, but I realized that I slept about four hours a night if I was lucky and I'd been doing that for, for decades. And I thought that I had to be like that to be a good surgeon because we model ourselves after these pioneers and these fathers mm -hmm. of surgery that are, that are glorified in textbooks, like, uh, you know, William Halstead, who never slept and operated like crazy, but m meanwhile was a cocaine and morphine addict. <laughs> so, so not perpetuating the myth that in order to be a surgeon and, and a healer, you know, to be a, to be someone who can take care of patients, that you have to be like that. There is a different way to be. And this is something that I really have been trying to emphasize with my other colleagues, uh, residents and students, that you can be both healthy yourself and be a surgeon, but it takes a lot of effort. You have to have boundaries. You have to um, really prioritize things in your life. And I, I, I can truthfully say, and Andy, I think you'll be happy for this. I sleep about eight to eight and a half hours a night. Uh, that's great. I have never been more well-rested in my life. <laughs> I have never had better sleep in my life. And I feel like a better provider mm -hmm. because yeah. I have taken care of myself. Even though it's you know been a few years since I have done that, I am now actively healing myself while I'm trying to heal other people. That seems like such a beautiful place to end this conversation. And we're so grateful uh, to have you in our fellowship. And uh, we're so grateful to have you modeling this healthier way of being a physician and a surgeon. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's really been my pleasure. Thank you.